0: Let's continue to worship the Lord as we open the scriptures together. Um, And as Jonathan and Michelle are concluding their time with us, we are uh, appropriately concluding our time in Paul's first letter to Timothy. Uh, We've been opening this book week after week since the first of January, and here we are, just a few weeks from Easter, incredibly. And um, we have made our way all the way to chapter six Verses three through twenty-one, and um, Paul does have really here concluding words. He does really have here a final charge for his young protege Timothy, and also for the Ephesian church. So much of what he's going to say uh, is very appropriate and resonates with our own sending out and concluding our time with Jonathan and Michelle. So uh, it's a lot. Uh, verses three through twenty-one. Going to talk fast. Do the best I can to cover as much ground as I. I'm able, uh, so let's dive in. First Timothy chapter six, verses three through 21. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, then that person is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. They fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, and it is through this craving for money that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But... As for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, pursue faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, I charge you in the presence of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, all the way until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, him who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, him who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him, Jesus be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. But as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but set their hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The rich are to do good and to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a lot easier to start things than to finish them. It's a lot easier to start things than it is to finish them. For example, from my own experience, each week I am off on Fridays and the kids are at school, so I try to make that laundry day. So each Friday I started out excitedly gathering all the dirty clothes loading up the washer, cranking up the dryer, starting to get it all in motion, and I'll put the clean clothes on the couch. Get another load going, one after another, after another, and man, that clean clothes pile starts growing. And then after lunch, it's time to start folding them and put them away, but I just can't finish the job. There's something about folding clothes and putting them away. So that clean clothes pile just gets bigger and bigger. And before you know it, it's Tuesday. And I have subjected my family to finding an outfit by digging through this mound of clothes on the couch because it's a lot easier to start things than it is to finish. Or maybe some of you guys have experienced this when starting a garden. Meg and I lived in an apartment complex one time, had a community garden. So we reserved the spot. I'm all committed. We're going to do this by the plants, the fertilizer, the tools. I enthusiastically spend my springtime Saturday getting everything ready. But then a few weeks later, the enthusiasm fades, and the weeds start to grow and grow and grow, and it ended up being a pretty fruitless effort on my part because it's easier to start than it is to finish. And there are any other number of areas of life when this can prove true, whether doing laundry or planting a garden or starting an annual Bible reading plan, Amen. Anybody stuck in the back half of Exodus? It's brutal. Or starting a new business. It's easier to get things going than it is to get things done. It's easier to start, Than it is to finish. And truth be told, it's no different when it comes to following Jesus. It's easier to start following Jesus than it is to finish life following Jesus. In chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, you remember, Paul mentions two brothers who, quote, shipwrecked their faith. And here in this section, chapter 6, verse 10, he speaks of those who wander away from the faith. And then finally in chapter 6 verse 21, those who have swerved from the faith. In each one of those instances, these people don't finish what they started when it comes to following Jesus. Or think about the parable of the soils in Matthew chapter 13. You remember Jesus tells this parable about Seed being sown along a path, seed being sown among rocky ground, and also seed being sown among thorny ground. The seed being a metaphor for God's word, and the soil being a metaphor for our hearts, where God's word is planted, as it were. Well, in each one of these instances, the seed is sown, the seed is planted, God's word is heard, whether on the path, the rocky ground, the thorny ground, All that's needed to start spiritual life has happened through the hearing of God's word and the planting of the seed. But what happens in the parable? In each instance, the job isn't finished. Along the path, the seed is snatched away and gone. Along the rocky ground, the plant can't take root and it falls. And on the thorny ground, the seed is choked out and withers because it's easier to start the process of following Jesus. It's easier to initially receive the implanted word than it is to finish the process of bearing a fruitful life. So Paul has a sense of urgency here. He knows what it's, what's at stake. He knows the difficulty of finishing well. So he's calling Timothy forward. He's urging him towards endurance. These are his concluding words And he uses them, yes, to offer instruction, but more than that, to offer exhortation. So twice he uses this language of charge. In verse 13, he says, I charge you, Timothy. And this is similar to a pregame speech. If you've ever been on a sports team before, the coach isn't so much teaching or explaining strategy at that point, right up until the game starts all that stuff is assumed. Rather, the pregame speech is usually more of a charge. It's an encouragement to win the game, play hard, finish the job. And we can see this also in that Paul's really going to just repeat a lot of things that he's already talked about. He's already talked about false teachers in chapter one. He's already talked about the love of money in chapter three. He's already talked about avoiding irreverent silly myths in chapter four. So in many ways, he's just repeating and pressing home what he's already said. And again, this is a lot like a a pregame or a halftime speech when the coach has some urgency. He has some fire in his belly. He's trying to call this same sort of thing out of his players. When a coach is doing that, He's not sharing new information. He's really just repeating and pressing in, calling for a response. That's what the apostle wants to do for us. Maybe for you, it's the end of the first quarter. You're 20 something years old. There's some unique challenges for you and you are going to need endurance to stay on the path of Jesus. Or maybe for you, it's a halftime speech. You're 40-something years old. can't believe I fit into this category now. I turned 38 this summer. Now, we've come a long way, yeah. But Lord willing, we've still got a long way to go and several obstacles left. And we need endurance to continue to bear fruit for Christ. Or maybe for you, you're in the final stretch. There's no more pregame speeches. There's no more halftime speeches. Like, you can see the finish line. Fifteen, ten, five years left max for you. But my senior, retired brothers and sisters in the faith, you still need endurance to finish the race well. And Satan would happily ruin what could otherwise be some of your most fruitful years. So what does it look like to finish well? How can we make sure that we conclude our lives trusting in Jesus and bearing spiritual fruit? Well, the apostle is gonna give us here at least three things. First, he says to us, keep yourself from pride and foolish controversy. Keep yourself from pride and foolish controversy. So let's look back again, starting in verse three. Paul comes back to this topic of false teachers, those who teach a different doctrine. These are the people who he later says in verse 10 have wandered away from the faith. He's already talked about them in chapter one, but he agains come back to this topic as a part of his concluding exhortation. But also he comes back to this topic of false teachers because he wants to reveal what's underneath the hood of their hearts. In other words, Paul is going to diagnose their motivations and critique their character, really. He says in verse three, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, if anyone does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, then that person is puffed up with conceit. So Paul says about these teachers that it's not simply that their understanding of God is incorrect, their understanding of themselves is incorrect. He says they're puffed up, they're conceited. A more common word that we use is arrogant. Similarly, in Romans chapter 12, the apostle talks about the possibility that we think of ourselves more highly than we ought. So he's saying that we can have this inflated, puffed up view of ourselves. Paul says that's what's going on with these false teachers who have shipwrecked their faith, And in verse 4, he says that their arrogance leads to this unhealthy craving for controversy. An unhealthy craving for controversy. So it seems that the chosen arena for them showing off themselves is controversies and arguments and debates where they can presumably one-up their competition and prove their intellectual prowess. Well, this made me think about this. I wanna share with you a sampling of news headlines from a few websites. These came from a few of the largest news outlets, Fox, CNN, MSNBC, and it took me just a few minutes to find these headlines because you see them all the time. I'm gonna read them in my best WWE announcer voice. Biden's budget draws battle lines for debt ceiling fights. Raskin shreds McCarthy for scandalous role in January 6th Deception. White House stops holding back, slams Tucker Carlson by name, right? Like, could that not pass as an advertisement for a UFC pay-per-view event? It's this very combative language. Fights, shreds, slams. My point is that this is all around us especially with politics, but also other cultural topics and even theology, we have, as Paul says, an unhealthy craving for controversy. And my concern is that this fighting spirit is not about standing for the truth. My concern is that this fighting spirit is not about fighting for righteousness. Rather, as Paul says here, it's because we're puffed up with conceit. And we want to show off how awesome we are by putting down the other side. In other words, we idolize ourselves, and so we feel free to demonize our enemies. This is an attitude we see on social media. We hear it in talk radio. We see it in TV talking heads. But tragically, the truth is we all too often see it in here as well. Tragically, we all too often see this same sort of unhealthy craving for controversy amongst us, God's church. Brothers and sisters, it should not be so. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says that he is lowly in heart. Lowly in heart. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant to serve his enemies. And throughout the New Testament, Jesus is likened to a humble, gentle lamb. We were worshiping him earlier, saying just the same. The lamb of God, worthy is the lamb who was slain. That's who our savior is. So how could this man, Jesus, lowly as he is, servant as he is, gentle as he is, be the center of our religion, and yet we find a way to be puffed up and arrogant? I mean, think about this. As Christians, this is what we believe. This is what we believe, that we are so broken You and I, each one of us, we are each so corrupted by sin that God in the flesh had to come and die a gruesome death on the cross to atone for how jacked up we are. That's what we believe. That's the gospel. Yet despite believing that, supposedly, we still find a way to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, being puffed up with conceit. And we're willing to fight others over whatever controversy because we are so self-confident. Paul says this is not just a matter of looking like an idiot on social media carrying out political and cultural fights online, dumb as we do look. It's also a matter of wandering away from the faith altogether. This kind of arrogant attitude and lofty opinion of ourselves will ultimately lead us To abandon Jesus. Arrogant, prideful Christians do not stay Christians very long. They don't finish the race. So church, let's humble ourselves. Let's get low before the cross and learn true humility at the feet of our crucified Savior. Let's learn a correct view of ourselves that we are deeply broken and we cannot stand in judgment. We cannot stand in judgment, certainly not before God, but not even before others. The apostle says in Romans chapter 3, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 22 and 23, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Republicans and Democrats have fallen short of the glory of God. Africans and Caucasians have fallen short of the glory of God. Jews and Gentiles have fallen short of the glory of God. Progressives and conservatives have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no distinction. You see, this is one of the unique things about Christianity. In every other religion, there's a ranking system the ones who have fulfilled the eightfold path of Buddha and the unenlightened, the ones who have faithfully kept the five pillars of Islam and the ones who have failed, the ones who are enlightened, the ones who are unenlightened, the rich and the poor. There's all sorts of distinctions that every other religion makes. Christianity says, no, there is no distinction. (laughs) We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We cannot stand in judgment before God. We cannot stand in judgment before one another. That's what that means, church. That's applying the gospel. That's consistently living out the gospel. When we have this craving for controversy, when we live with this puffed up conceitedness, we contradict the gospel. We say something about Jesus that is not true. Everyone needs a Savior equally the same. But when we live with humility, we affirm that truth, that I am equally as broken as the most degenerate, pagan, crazy political opponent that I could ever possibly imagine. That's what's true, church. Let's live into this. Let's be salt and light. Let's distinguish ourselves not just from the right, but let's distinguish ourselves from the left Let's distinguish ourselves, not just from the left, but from the right, by being different, salt and light. Can you guys tell I take this personally? (laughs) I'm way off script right now. (laughs) But it's not because this is my favorite topic. It's because this is a live topic. And I'm not here to just pontificate about scripture. I'm here to pastor you. And I'm telling you, church, We need to go before the cross, look up at our savior, but also look to our right and our left and realize that our worst cultural enemy, our biggest political opponent, they are right down there with us. When we embrace this truth, that's true unity. That's true unity. It's Jesus who brings us here, nothing else. Not our politics, not our cultural background, not because I'm on this side of this controversy and you're on this side of this controversy. We are here because of Jesus, period, period. Okay, I'll stop. We gotta go home. (laughs) What does it look like to finish well? Keep yourself from pride and foolish controversies. Secondly, avoid the snare of discontentment and wealth. Avoid the snare of discontentment and wealth. So Paul's actually gonna bring this topic up of discontentment and wealth two separate times within our one passage today. He brings it up in verses six through 10 related to false teachers in the church. And then he brings it up again in verses 17 through 19, just more generally addressing rich people in the church. And Paul's got a pretty balanced word that he's gonna say overall. On the one hand, he's gonna say that money is a blessing. Money comes from God for our enjoyment. But on the other hand, he warns that the comfort and security and power that money provides us can be dangerously deceptive and spiritually destructive. So money is good, but it's potentially dangerous, a lot like fire, really. Fire can keep you warm and save your life, uh, especially in a place like where we live, where it's so cold. Money can keep you warm, and it can burn your house down. So there's a goodness, and there's a danger. So let's look at this first section on wealth as it relates to false teachers. You remember the apostle, he's diagnosing these guys' Hearts. He's doing some soul work on them, exposing their true motivations. We talked about before how arrogance had infected their hearts and they had a lofty, incorrect opinion of themselves. Well, now Paul's going to say they have an incorrect view of wealth. Paul says at the end of verse 5 that they quote, imagine godliness as a means of gain. So, in other words, they think Christianity and their spiritual leadership exists for their material wealth. He says later that they have a love for money. And the way they satisfy this greedy impulse and gain more money is through Christianity, through their spiritual influence over people's lives. You can imagine how this may sound. Pay me and I'll pray for you. Pay me and I'll anoint you with the Holy Spirit. Pay me and I'll teach you the true gospel. Paul is saying that is a complete imagination and fabrication, kind of, kind of. Because he then says in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. So there is a kind of gain, even great gain, that comes with following Jesus and pursuing godliness. But it's not quite what these false teachers imagined. It's the kind of gain that includes contentment with having simply food and clothing. And the way that Paul promotes this kind of contentment is by causing us to reflect on both our death, I'm sorry, on both our birth and our death in relation to material wealth. So verse seven, he says, we brought nothing into the world. We were born in our birthday suit, which includes nothing, completely stripped, completely naked, completely broke, We brought nothing into the world. And and yet, despite our origin, despite coming from nothing, look at how God has grown you. Look at how God has provided you all these years, all your life. And so the implicit challenging question seems to be, now why this craving for all this other stuff? You brought nothing into the world so you know that you don't need a whole lot to survive or even thrive. So why now this lust for money? Why now this craving for all this material wealth which can really sidetrack your faith? Verse eight, we brought nothing into the world when we were born and we cannot take anything out of the world when we die. So there, again, there's kind of an implicit challenging question. Why this craving for all these material things? You came from nothing when you were born, nor can you keep anything after you die. So the thought seems to be, if we can keep this perspective, it'll help promote contentment in our hearts, which will help keep us on the path of Jesus and guard us from wrecking our faith. We came from nothing. We are eventually going to have nothing. So why do we think we need so much when all we need is food and clothing? But, He continues in verse 9, these false teachers, they desire to be rich. They long for financial wealth. And this desire, this longing leads them to this progressive descent. They fall into temptation first. They get caught in a snare, a trap. Then they are plunged into ruin and destruction. Because, verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. You see, this is what's tricky about this. Paul is not warning us about money so much. He's warning us about the love of money. He's not warning us about being rich. He's warning us about the desire to be rich. And you can't see love, right? You can't see desires. My love is in my heart. My desires are in my heart. And similarly, you can't see roots. You can see the plant, you can see the tree that grows from the roots, but you can't see the root itself. My point is that this can be tricky to discern in ourselves because it's underneath the surface, just like a root is underneath the surface of the ground. The love of money is underneath the surface of our hearts, but it's a root that sprouts forth all kinds of misery and wickedness. I wanna read you a quote from pastor. It's a pretty long quote that gets at this same point. He's a longtime pastor and he shares about his experience trying to shepherd his church away from greed. He says this, some years ago, I was doing a seven part series of talks on the seven deadly sins at a men's breakfast. My wife told me, I'll bet the week you deal with greed, you will have your lowest attendance. And she was right. People packed it out for lust and wrath and even for pride, but nobody thinks they are greedy. As a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin, almost, because I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greed lust for money is harming my family, my soul, people around me, because greed hides itself from the victim The God of money, his modus operandi, includes blindness to your own heart. Why can't anyone in the grip of greed see it? It's because the counterfeit God of money uses powerful sociological and psychological dynamics. You see, everyone tends to live in a particular socioeconomic bracket. Once you are able to afford to live in a particular neighborhood, send your children to its schools and participate in its social life, you will find yourself surrounded by quite a number of people who have more money than you. So you don't compare yourself to the rest of the world, you compare yourself to those in your bracket. The human heart always wants to justify itself, and this is one of the easiest ways, by comparison. You say, I don't live as well as him or her or them. My means are modest compared to theirs. You can reason and think like that no matter how lavishly you are living. And so as a result, most Americans think of themselves as middle class. Only 2% call themselves upper class, but the rest of the world is not fooled. When people visit here from other parts of the globe, they are staggered to see the level of materialistic comfort that the majority of Americans have come to view as a necessity. You see, he's explaining how the love of money is a root It's a love that's hidden in our hearts and we keep it hidden by comparing ourselves to those in our immediate vicinity. So church, we need the lens of God's word and we need the movement of God's spirit to help us see below the surface, to help us really understand how we view wealth. So if our first point forced us to ask, what's your view of yourself? Are you puffed up with arrogance? Then the second point should cause us to ask, what's your view of wealth? Is money a gift from God that's to be used for his glory and the good of others and to cover my necessities? Or as he says in verse 17, is it something you're putting your hope in? Is more money your solution to anxiety? Is more money what helps you feel more secure? These are all questions that can help us do some soul work ourselves and help us get below the surface of our hearts. How can we make sure that we conclude our lives trusting in Jesus and bearing spiritual fruit? Paul says, Keep yourself from pride and foolish controversy, avoid the snare of discontentment and wealth, and finally, pursue the light and life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pursue. Jesus, because it is not enough to have a lowly view of ourselves. We must have an exalted view of Jesus. It is not enough to have a correct view of money and material possessions. We need a clear view of Jesus as our ultimate provider. So this is where the apostle really gets into sort of rah-rah mode. Urging Timothy, charging Timothy, calling him onward. He says in verse 10, the false teachers through their Love of money are plunged into ruin and destruction. But, verse 11, as for you, O man of God, you flee these things. Flee from arrogance, flee from greed, pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, fight the good, fight. Take hold of the eternal life. So it's interesting to know that all these things that he lists, for us to pursue and fight for and take hold of, all of them are gifts. Righteousness, faith, eternal life, these are all gifts from God to be received and love and steadfastness and gentleness, these are all the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Nevertheless, even though these are gifts and even though these are the fruits of the Spirit's work, there is still a sense in which we fight for them. We pursue them. We take hold of them. The Christian life is not some completely passive project whereby we just wait for God to do stuff. No, we go after him. We seek him. I've heard it said this way. The gospel is contrary to earning, but the gospel is not contrary to effort. The gospel is contrary to earning, but it's not contrary to effort. In other words, we cannot earn our salvation, praise God. Salvation is a gift, we can't earn it, but that doesn't mean we don't exert effort in pursuing God, and that's what Paul is saying here. With everything in you, like your life depends on it, flee from sin and pursue Jesus, because your life does depend on it. I don't know about you guys, but my favorite part by far of water parks is the Lazy River. You know these places. There was one near my hometown growing up called Big Kahunas. It's a water park. My favorite part of the water park is Lazy Rivers. You know, they have the the big slides. They have the big wave pools. They have the big blob thing where you shoot people way up in the air. That all just looks painful to me now. And so my favorite part, by far, is the Lazy River. You know, it's this long, circular canal kind of thing. You plop down in your circular little inner tube. You put on some shades. You get a cold drink. You soak up some sun and just take it easy. Just go with the flow, relax, no effort. Well, as much as I enjoy that water park experience at Big Kahuna's, That is, in one sense, the opposite of the Christian life. In this life, in this world, as followers of Jesus, we are going against the current. We are traveling upstream, and if we are in a lazy river mode, If we are in lazy river mode, then we are going to get swept away. And so Paul calls us here, flee from wickedness, pursue the way of Christ, engage in the fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life that's been granted to you, take an active role in promoting godliness in your own life. So what does this look like for you? As it concerns fleeing from sin, are there relationships that you need to walk away from as it concerns fleeing from sin are there relationships you need to walk away from because they're discouraging your pursuit of Christ are there some places that you need to start avoiding places that only leave you in pain and trouble as it concerns fleeing from sin what do you need To flee from. And as it concerns pursuing Christ, are there relationships you need to start, namely relationships with other believers who can cheer you on in your journey of faith? And are there places you need to go, like here or in a life group gathering or on a ministry team serving where Jesus is lifted high, where Jesus is sought after, where Jesus is listened to? As it concerns fleeing sin and pursuing Jesus, what are your next steps? Well, whatever this looks like, the apostle is urging us. The Spirit is urging us. Take those steps. Because it is easier to start than it is to finish. And if we are going to finish, then we need to hear this apostolic word. We need to hear the voice of the Spirit urging us forward. Hear this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have everything you need to finish the fight. In Christ, you are enough to stay on the path of Jesus all the way to the end. In Christ, you are secure. Every lie Satan throws at you, you can deflect with complete power. In Christ, you are strong. In Christ, you have what it takes to endure every single obstacle. I don't care if your faith is only enough to fill up one of those little water pistols. If you've got this much, we can storm the gates of hell and we will win. Brothers and sisters, you have what it takes in Christ to finish life trusting in Jesus, making an impact for eternity. So let's receive all that he has for us. His very presence inside of us, his love surrounding us, constant grace flowing from the foot of the cross when we fail. Everything we need, Everything we need, we have in Jesus. Let's receive it and let's fight the good fight of faith. Let's take hold of what our Lord is granting to us and let's keep hold of what Satan is trying to take from us because he will take it from us. Apart from us fleeing sin and pursuing Christ. I pray it would be so for you, for us, for our children and for the sake of the nations.